Welcome to PR360, a weekly interview podcast dedicated to talking about the important topics within the public relations technology industry, hosted by Brett Deister and in partnership with Global Results Communication. Find out more information at globalresultspr.com. And welcome to a new episode of PR360, and I'm your host, Brett Deister, and with me I have Neil Schaefer. He is the leading authority on helping businesses through digital transformation and sales and marketing through consulting, training, and helping large enterprises develop and execute on social media marketing strategy, influencer marketing, and social media initiatives. He has a wide range of experience and he has helped people through being a speaker on many different social media marketing conferences. And he has a book coming out soon called the age of influence, the power of influence to elevate your brand. It's come out actually this month. So, wow. Welcome to the show, Neil. Thank you very much. All right. So I asked all my guests, because it's really important to me, are you a coffee or tea drinker? Well, I, I want to know the same of you, but I am definitely a coffee drinker. Although after I've had my capacity of five cups, which is my average is four or five a day, uh, if I'm waiting for my kids during soccer practice at night, I'll switch to a chai latte. But other than that, other than a dirty chai here and there, it's definitely coffee. Oh, I'm a big coffee person too. My podcast myself is called Digital Coffee. So. That's right. Most podcasters have to be coffee people, huh? Most podcasters, gamers, and techies. It seems yeah. like to, it goes really well with each other. <laughs> so personally, what is your favorite social media right now? Well, I would say the place that I spend the most time personally would be Instagram. And it's just a great way to follow up with how people are doing, engage with them in a very visual and non-obtrusive way. Facebook always carries this. I have someone that actually tagged me on Facebook and said, have you seen what I tagged you on? Facebook carries with it a weight and sort of a responsibility in your content. There's certain things you don't want to cover. It's just not as fun for me as it used to be. On the other hand, from a digital marketing perspective, Twitter and Pinterest actually generate more traffic than LinkedIn and Facebook do for me. So I tend to spend my marketing time definitely more on Twitter than Pinterest, but Twitter and Pinterest more than Facebook. LinkedIn, I love as well. Coming out with a new book, there's just a lot of buzz and a lot of conversations. And every day I'm getting really relevant messages from my network, from new people that want to connect and what have you. So I love them all. But definitely Instagram right now on top, followed by Twitter, Pinterest, and LinkedIn close behind. Facebook is, sorry, but pretty far down there. And then don't ask me about TikTok. <laughs> I, yes, I do have an account. And yes, I love seeing my 15-year-old daughter try to imitate Charlie B or whatever her name is, her whole dances to Renegade. But other than that, yeah, from a business perspective, I am not targeting Gen Z. I'm targeting businesses, baby boomer, Gen X, millennial. So there's your answer for TikTok in case you plan on asking me that question uh, during this podcast interview. Well, I mean, I might ask you about the newer stuff, but not specifically since most businesses are still trying to figure out TikTok and I haven't really like delved into it too much. But I understand the Pinterest. I have 15,000 followers on Pinterest and I just started it when it was new and I was like, let's just try it out and see how it works. <laughs> yeah, Pinterest is amazing. I have like, I don't know, 35,000. It's basically a place where you don't have to engage with others. You publish content, you consume content, you create your boards. So it's a refreshing site. And I think that tactically, Pinterest is a really easy site to generate traffic from once you have it figured out. Yeah, that's true. And over the long term. I had to figure it out a little bit, but I was also new or I went on it when it was new. So it helped me because every time you're on it, when it's new, you get a little bit more traffic through there too. That's true. So what do you think the state of social media is in 2020? Well, I think the state of social media, we're almost getting back to, I wouldn't say we're getting back to traditional advertising per se, but for brands and companies to really be heard in social media organically, we all know it's getting more and more difficult. So you have certain social networks where you get a little bit more organic reach and actually TikTok, you probably get the most organic reach. We talk about 1% of users are content creators and 99% are lurkers. Probably with TikTok, it's more like 0.1% of content creators. So if you can dance it up, great. But that is really the message is that it's just really hard. You have to have a paid social campaign or, or 
budget to complement what you do organically. But what I've been teaching and what I wrote a book on really is this concept of influencers and influencer marketing. And I think a lot of PR professionals and marketers have been really miseducated because it's not about the Instagrammer that you're going to pay $1,000 and send product to get a picture of. It comes down to this local Orange County B2B startup, and they're creating a certain type of IT software. And why don't we actually go and, and reach out to those people in that community that are really active on Twitter, that actually are bloggers? Maybe we can use a podcast as a vehicle And I believe a lot of podcasters that do interviews are doing influencer marketing. They're using a podcast as a vehicle to reach out to influencers and to try to co-create content with them. So with that concept, I think we're now seeing more brands understand that it's less about reaching people you don't know that have influence, but looking for influence around you, in your employees, in your followers, in your customers. And hopefully this book, The Age of Influence, it actually comes out next week on St. Patty's Day, March 17th. Hopefully it becomes something that CEOs read, that VPs of PR, CMOs, VPs of marketing read, that gives them the understanding that really influencer marketing should be a line item on the budget compared with all the other channels out there. And furthermore, I think because I know a lot of the listeners here are from the world of public relations, you know, there are large B2B organizations now that have an influencer relations department. And most marketers approach influencers as if they're programmable ad units. We want you to post this on a certain day, one Instagram post, one Twitter post, one LinkedIn post. Make sure you use this content. They don't understand how building relationships with influencers can help you actually convert them into brand ambassadors. And this is something that PR professionals get. And I often find when I'm working with companies If you have a PR team, you may want to actually put them on influencer relations because in the new media that we call digital media, the influencers really are content creators that are out there. So rather than having a marketer or even worse, outsource it to a tool to send the same cut and paste message to 100 different influencers and make them mad and then they say bad things about your brand, really it should be an individualized, personalized approach that was never in the DNA of a marketer, but very much in the DNA of a PR professional. But I also want to say that social is just part of digital marketing. So it's not just about social. It's also taking a look back at your SEO. It's also looking at email marketing and marketing automation. It's also looking at these other components and making sure you have the right mix. It's also looking at what are you doing traditionally? And it's interesting. I have a publicist for my book. So she's trying to pitch me to CNN and what have you. And with coronavirus, of all the terrible things happening around the world, it is going to push more businesses to do more digitally. And I do believe that's marketing as well. So if you have an event marketing budget for the next few months, that's probably going to go into more like webinars or online events, right? We're going to see this push. So I think taking another look at your traditional marketing spend and thinking about you may want to put more of that into digital is going to be a natural byproduct of what we see. So these are the things that I talk with companies. So when you ask me the state of the union, That's the general state, but every company is going to be different because some companies do great with traditional media. So keep doing what you're doing, right? Others, you know, email marketing is their key thing. With others, it's Facebook ads. Others, startups on Instagram, 100% influencer marketing. So it really comes down to knowing your customer, knowing where they're consuming content, engaging with them through these different means, organic paid influencer, and really measuring and figuring out what works and spending more money there. And going back to what you said about organic reach, I've heard that LinkedIn does actually have a pretty good organic reach right now. I mean, that's always changing. What do you think about that? Yeah, so TikTok by far, although some people are saying, are these TikTok stats legit? Like, did that video really get a million views? But take that aside. Um, Definitely Instagram for B2C and LinkedIn for B2B. LinkedIn, people forget, does not rely on the newsfeed to generate revenue. If you think about Facebook, Instagram, it's all about ads. LinkedIn has Sales Navigator for salespeople. They have, you know, obviously they have marketing solutions, but they also generate a lot of revenue from HR solutions, right? So they don't have to rely on newsfeed advertising. And I believe that LinkedIn, I don't know, maybe a year, year and a half ago, made a very, very strategic decision to actually expose more content in the newsfeed, even from company pages. So I work with businesses now where their LinkedIn company page is getting more engagement than their Facebook page. And these are B2B companies. So yes, I think it's time to relook at LinkedIn. 
there's also just a huge user base on LinkedIn and just not enough content because millennials are digital natives. They're used to creating a lot of content and publishing it, but people in the older generations never had that in their DNA, right? So there's always, the algorithm is also defined by supply and demand. And I just think there's not enough content on LinkedIn, which is why it's working in your favor. So absolutely, if you haven't really measured how you do on LinkedIn recently, you really should. And, and obviously we have video that is coming out that is becoming very, very popular there with live stream video right down the road. So that's definitely something that every company should be looking into if they haven't been. And then moving on to, you talked about COVID-19. Conferences has been canceled about this and part of PR is event marketing as well. So what do you think about the live streaming services being converted over to using your ad spend and maybe more live streaming or your time for, depending on who you are, Twitch or LinkedIn Live? Like, do you think most conferences are going to go that way for the foreseeable future? Well, I think, first of all, at the time we're recording this, there's a lot of wait and see. Obviously, South by Southwest canceled. I was at two conferences last week, Social Media Marketing World in San Diego, PodFest in Orlando, Florida, that didn't cancel. My flight from LAX to Orlando was absolutely packed. When I arrived at LAX, I thought that there weren't as many people as normal. And Social Media Marketing World, maybe there were some speakers who canceled and maybe 10 to 20% of attendees did not show. But I think going forward, we see cities and states and governments, I think in Germany today, they announced any public gathering over 100 people should not happen. So I think we need to buy time. And if we have a Q1 or Q2 budget, I do believe that until, until we hit summer, and I believe that a lot of these types of pandemics, they usually die down in the summer because viruses don't perform as well in, in, in hot weather. That's sort of the, the thought. So I do believe if you have something planned for the first half of the year, yes, you still have your objectives. And if you can't engage with people physically, you still need to engage with them to hit your PR marketing objectives. And yes, whether it's live stream over social media, whether it's over YouTube, we've seen a really big popularity in terms of these virtual summits. They become very, very easy to hold as well, or in a webinar format. The virtual summit is basically webinars that are pieced together to create a conference-like environment. But Yes, I do believe that if companies had not been thinking about that before, this is the time they really want to think about that, especially if you're used to generating a lot of media coverage or a lot of leads from those events. The more important that is in your strategy, the more you should be shifting and really focusing on these live stream, virtual summit webinar type of online digital marketing. Moving on to the influencer marketing part, you touched about it a little bit. What do you think it looks like for 2020 with influencer marketing? It seems like everybody wants to get involved with it, which brings up the price of everything. So what do you think is going to happen? I've heard like niche influencers, now there's nano influencers. So are you thinking it's going to be more niched or nanoed or more specialized in influencer marketing than it has before? I think that brands have gotten a lot smarter about influencer marketing. I think several years ago, brands were just throwing a lot of money at the space and let's get more engagement. And now it's more, what is going to be the ROI? How do we measure this? How do we do better at this? We've already seen a shift from the celebrity to the macro influencer to the mid-influencer, now to the micro, and then more recently we talk about the nano-influencer. So it's definitely getting more niche. And the beautiful thing about influencer marketing is if you want to find that perfect demographic, now with paid social ads, you can also do targeting, but not to the extent of working with someone that already has that exact community that you want to tap into. That's really the promise and the benefits of influencer marketing. So yes, it's going to get more niche, but on the other hand, big brands, they want to activate a hundred influencers at a time. They're going to try to activate, they have budgets to meet. So we're still going to see this like mass. We just need to fill numbers type of influencer marketing. It's still going to exist. But I think the smart brands, they're going to go more niche. They're also going to try to become more collaborative in their relationship. And really the end goal is ideally to convert these influencers into becoming your brand advocate. So the collaborative approach is really an individualized one by one, how can we work together approach? So it's not always money. Sometimes influencers want unique experiences. Sometimes they want access to product or access to dedicated customer service. Or we're seeing a lot more, especially in the consumer space, flying influencers somewhere on a trip, which is going to be hard to do now with the coronavirus. But you know, once again, giving some sort of unique experience, interviews with internal executives, whatever it might be. And I think that the smart companies are going to get more creative in how they work with influencers and really try to find the right ones and make deep relationships where these influencers will talk about 
brands without brands having to ask them to do so because they've already become a fam. Mm-hmm. And do you think we're going to start to see maybe a decline? Do you think we're at a peak at influencer marketing or do you think there's still enough room to grow at this? Because it seems like it's everywhere now. Well, I think we're actually at the tip of the iceberg until it is a line item budget in the marketing budgets of every company worldwide. There's still a lot of people who, well, I'm a B2B company. Influencer marketing is irrelevant, right? Or I'm targeting an older generation. It's irrelevant. So there's still a lot of misconceptions. And it really, based on that approach that I talked about, even in B2B, it can work. Even when I talk to pharmaceutical brands, nonprofits who have a large community of people that pharmaceutical brands would like to tap into, they become the influencers, right? Perhaps if ex-mayor in New York City would have tapped more into his influencers within his staff to push the word out about him instead of trying to hire external influencers to push worthless memes on Instagram, he might have done better, right? So there's still, I believe, a great potential. And and I do believe that we're still at the beginning of this. Right now, that definition of influencer is really, really narrow. Once brands realize that digital influence really is everywhere, and it's in their best interest if their employees actually have more digital influence, I think we begin to see more of a renaissance of influencer marketing. That's obviously, that's why I wrote this book. I do think that there's still huge potential once you have that solid understanding of it and how it can really help your business. Yeah. I mean, working for a couple game companies. Yeah. I've seen large amounts of money being thrown at me, or at least me telling my boss, this is how much they want to cost because Twitch and Mixer and all those other things, like that's kind of how a lot of, at least for gaming, that's a lot of influencers kind of got big that way is through that. And those gaming influencers can be very expensive depending on how big they are. Oh, they're huge, right? So, I mean, you know, Ninja, and obviously these people can charge a lot. So really, you know, it really comes down to your objectives. Do you need working with like a Ninja is like working with a, a TV actor in essence right? or, or actress. So you really need to decide, do you want to go big? If you want to put all your eggs into one basket and work with one person, you might end up working with Logan Paul and we know what happened to him. So there's also some risks associated with that. That's why I recommend you really want to work with a pool of people. I'd rather... Why don't you help the next gamer, the next influencer gamer? Why don't you help them build up their influence by working together with you, right? This would be more the approach. It's probably going to be more financially feasible, but it it also, I believe the influencer more appreciates that you're backing them at such an early stage when they don't have that influence. I think that you're going to be able to sort of get first dibs, for lack of a better word. And assuming that that person becomes more influential, it's obviously going to pay benefits over time. So that would be my advice there. Yeah, I actually talked about that on my podcast a while ago about basically making a farm system. I called it like a sports thing. Yeah. Where you have like very small, small people wanting to be influencers and you give them like a certain amount of products, but you say you have to fulfill these types of goals for them to get to the next step. And so I saw it that way because I think influencer marketing is a little too simple right now and they need to think outwardly a little bit differently too. Well, I think it's also not just, there was the famous, I forgot who it was, that woman's name had a million followers on Instagram, and she only sold 12 copies of a t-shirt that she came out with. And there was this whole, oh, these influencers have no influence. So I think it also comes down to, at the end of the day, brands want to push something. They want to push product, or maybe they want to push conversation or engagement, what have you. So influencers need to deliver on that, obviously. And what's really interesting is there's a brand that I met in Asia where influencer marketing is more popular than it is here in North America, actually. And they actually wanted to train influencers on in how to become better content creators. They're like, we love these influencers. They were like nano micro. We love them. We actually want to foster community. We want to bring in more popular influencers to teach them how to create better video, how to blog better, how to podcast better, right? And I thought that was a great idea, actually, this notion of the farm system of bringing in the big leaguers for trainings, in essence, right? I think that makes a lot of sense. And I think that that's where you see influencer marketing less as a short-term campaign and you have a long-term program and you always have people of different types of influence in that program and you activate them depending on what your needs are for that particular campaign and what have you. And that's really what I write about in my book and, and what I preach. And I, I do, your example is bang on and I do see more companies doing that. So similar to media relations, you always have your hit list. Well, you would have the same thing with influencers. You start to build that community. Maybe you do regular events with coronavirus, maybe they're online events, but you, you know, you keep in better touch. They get to know the company better. You get to know them better. And from that, a lot of opportunities arise for both parties. 
switching to actually tools, what do you think are some of the best social media management tools out there in your opinion? So every company needs a social media dashboard. So you have Hootsuite, you have Sprout Social, you have Buffer. I actually just did a survey. If I open up my computer, I can give you the results. I looked at the tools that were being used by the 35 most influential people in social media marketing. So I used a tool to, there used to be clout, which doesn't exist anymore. So I used another tool to sort of give that ranks influence. And I used another tool to find out what Twitter tools they were using. So every single one of those 35 people used twitter.com because Twitter now has added the ability to schedule tweets, for instance, which it didn't have. So it's actually added a lot of functionality. But after that, I've actually seen fewer people that are using a Hootsuite or a Sprout Social. Buffer Hootsuite, Sprout Social still up there. We've seen a growth definitely in Agora Pulse. This is actually the social media tool that I use. There's also Sendable, which is another great tool. A lot of agencies use them. And then obviously after that, there's, there's a bunch of other tools, right? But I think right now, those would be Hootsuite, Agora Pulse, Sprout, Buffer, Sendable. Those are probably the top five outside of the enterprise where then you have Sprinkler and Spreadfast and all sorts of things. So that's for your basic dashboard. Then you get into a listening tool. And if you're in PR, I think listening tools really evolved from the needs of PR professionals a decade ago, right? I remember Radian 6 was like the big thing with PR agencies. So you have a lot of different technology there. I think that for a lot of small businesses, there's a tool called Brand24, that is very economical. It's a pretty sophisticated tool. And I think when you get to the mid and large and really enterprise companies, Talkwalker is a really great tool that has visual recognition. So even if I'm looking at the water in front of me is branded Deja Blue, great name, by the way. And if someone on Instagram posted a picture of Deja Blue without mentioning it in the text, the visual recognition of Talkwalker would actually pick that up. So you'd, it's a visual mention that the social listening tool would pick up, which I think for a lot of consumer brands is really, really important. So that would be another type of tool. Outside of that, there's obviously a lot of other tools. There's content creation tools, there's employee advocacy tools. But I think the social media dashboard and the social listening tool are probably the two core ones that for most businesses might be all you need. And for those PR people that don't really do content creation very well, do you think like Canva is one of the top ones to actually use for a lot of them? Yeah, I think for visual content, Canva is the standard, without a doubt. I'd say of the marketers that I talk to or I listen to a lot of marketing podcasts myself, I consume a lot of blogs, Canva probably has 80% share, is my assumption. Now, if you're really good at graphics, you have a Photoshop. And there are competitors to Canva. There's Easel, there's, there's a few others. But I think Canva pretty much has your back with their templates, what have you. The challenge is to not make it look like it was created in Canva, <laughs> which is the other issue. There's also a lot of, uh, I outsource some of my visual content creation because within Canva, you can make a template, you can hire someone and they can actually create it using your template in Canva. So you have full control over the branding. You give them a few hex codes, some you know brand guidelines, and you can find a lot of people that are very proficient at it if you don't have the budget or, or the resources. So that's the other option. So like Fiverr, going to Fiverr and all those other places. I create all of my Pinterest images in Fiverr, in honesty, and I've found... I've found great visual people there. I've found great content writer on Upwork that I work with on all my content. So there's, I think a few years ago, the talent wasn't there, but there's so many small businesses that rely on Fiverr Upwork. And I think that the quality of the talent, if you find the right people, that's the problem. You're not always going to find the perfect person on the first try, but they are out there. Podcast intro, outro, Fiverr all the way. Podcast editing, Fiverr now, someone I met on Upwork. So there you have it. That, and that's really for small businesses that are scrappy, that don't have a lot of dedicated resources. Those are great avenues. But obviously with your PR strategy, marketing, you want to own that strategy, right? But the notion of hiring someone to do all this for you, I think is actually antiquated. The more nimble small businesses that I know, including my own businesses, we hire dedicated people for dedicated tasks that are really good at that task. That's all they do. And it ends up actually being better, faster, and it costs less money because you don't necessarily need them to do a full-time job for you seven days a week, 365 days a year. And moving back to social media companies, what do you expect to see from them in 2020? I know recently Twitter is testing out Fleeks, which is basically their story versions. What do you expect to see from all these? And LinkedIn is also experimenting with something. Yeah, they're all copying each other and they all want you to stay on their platform longer. And often when I talk about social media and social media algorithms, when I speak at conferences, I'll have a slide up of a 1950s audience 
like in black and white around the black and white TV, probably like trying to watch an episode of Leave it to Beaver. And this is what every social network wants to become. They want to become the place that attracts you to spend hours and hours every day there that replaces the TV. And that's why TikTok is so powerful because the average spend time there is great and Snapchat as well for that generation. So they're going to try other features that other social networks have done and see how they go. What's really interesting is I talked about employee advocacy. And one of the greatest employee advocacy tools that I've always recommended is one that LinkedIn has called LinkedIn Elevate. And I heard on a blog post just today that LinkedIn's actually canceling. They're pulling the plug on Elevate. So not all these things work out. And we've seen social networks. I mean, Pinterest tried communities like groups. That never happened. LinkedIn had groups. They sort of phased them out. Now they're back. They used to have events, which they phased out. Now they're back. So they're going to try all these different experiments to see what holds. I don't think we're going to see anything radically new, but I do think that those companies that have a video first approach to all this, we used to talk about being mobile first. We're way beyond that, right? But really video first approach to content creation are going to be the ones that win in this new social media environment of, of 2020 and beyond. Yeah. I recently uploaded like something on SlideShare. I'm like, man, they haven't really looked at this in a while. Yeah. But instead of uploading a blog post to LinkedIn and just posting a link, actually create a minute video of yourself describing that content with a link in the first comment and try that experiment. And I think you're going to see a very, very different. The great thing is that the video doesn't have to be professionally done. It can be shot on an iPhone. The, the lighting is going to be important. Maybe what you're wearing in the background. But if you have all that in place, just talking for a minute about that piece of content. Like I said, you could put the link in the text. I've heard it's, if it's in the first comment, it's even better because it's not in the text. And LinkedIn doesn't want you to dupe the system by replacing a link with a video than with the link there. So something to experiment with. I think you're going to find very, very different results. And because it's video, you create this unique relationship with the viewer. It's a deeper, stickier relationship that I think any business would want. I'll eventually do that once I get non-data caps on my internet provider. Oh, man. You know, Google Fiber just sent me, like, they're coming to my neighborhood. And I put up an Instagram poll, you know, what do you think? And it was like 90% go with Google Fiber. So I'm there. I have a I have a provider that's also been throttling. And the only reason I use them is because I use their TV service. And now, like, Google Fiber, YouTube TV, save 50, 60 bucks a month, like, 20 times faster speed. And with YouTube TV, it's like the DVR is in the cloud, and it's like nine months worth unlimited. It's... And it's a no-brainer. But anyway, I know we got off topic there. But <laughs> Yeah, but uh, moving back, do you think social networks are going to be more niche going forward? Or do you think they're still going to do a wide range of people? I think it's still going to remain wide. But the niche really is in the communities. Like That's why Facebook's investing so much in the Facebook groups. You see the TV ads, right? There's People join social media to get back in touch with friends and then for a sense of community for the causes that are important to them. We also saw that with LinkedIn groups from the professional side. So I don't think there's going to be any newcomer social network that's going to take everything over. Obviously, well, Snapchat is now firmly in competition with TikTok, I believe. And I think that Instagram is looking at TikTok going, wow, they may sort of take over some of our space. So there's always going to be competition among the demographics. But I don't see something replacing Facebook in the next year. I don't see something replacing LinkedIn in the next year. To get to that mass appeal, we could say TikTok achieved a certain appeal because they bought out Musical.ly, which already had an installed user base. So through merger and acquisition, maybe. I don't know what happened to StumbleUpon. I don't know what happened to MySpace. It might still be around. But if you bought into a social network, yes, you might be able to create something new. But I don't see people leaving these social networks so long as there's not too much advertising on them. And I think that's really the core challenge for every social network is how do you monetize this without it being one big advertisement? And I think they've been pretty good at it. You know, we see a lot of Instagram ads. We still flip over them. Same with Facebook, same with LinkedIn. So it's a pretty decent balance. Yeah, I think MySpace is still around. I think, I think they are too, right? Time bottom out or something like that. It's been moved around so many different times. Yeah, yeah. What do you think about the missteps previously last year from social media companies or the legacy social media companies? Do you think it's hurt the industry as a whole, like Facebook and Twitter and the election thing, but also just Cambridge Analytica doing stuff? Do you think that's hurt? The industry? It's hurt marketers most because we used to have access to a lot of data, a lot of APIs, a lot of tools used. So if we wanted to find out the exact demographics of any Instagram followers, we used to be able to do that, which we cannot do anymore. Whenever I look at like an influencer tool and I look at audience demographics, they're pulling it from Twitter. 
And often they're pulling it from like the last 5,000 followers. It's not very scientific. Whereas before, you used to really be able to pull all that data. A lot of tools used to be able to publish like, you know, directly in the LinkedIn, Facebook, in the LinkedIn groups, in the Facebook groups, and they go in and out. But one thing that's happened in addition to that lack of access to that data is that people are more and more concerned about their privacy, obviously. And this is something that every social network has to make them feel comfortable with. But I think with, you know, GDPR and with the recent California Act, that more and more businesses are realizing that the Wild West of social media is sort of coming to an end. And I think that consumers are going to demand more and more privacy. But in general, I don't think it's going to have a deep of impact as you would think. I think that people are still going to use. I think that um, maybe tricky ads or tricky bots are not going to be as effective as they were. It's sort of like been there, seen that before. So I think people, and we've seen it especially on a network like LinkedIn, people are really leery about people that send them new connection requests these days, right? Compared to the past because of all the bots that you connect, the next thing you get a sales pitch. And I'd say the same for Instagram. Instagram used to be very easy to organically grow your following. It's very difficult now because people are beyond that. I'm just going to follow anyone and everyone. I don't want to deal with spammers and bots, what have you. So that's just a, a maturation, I believe, of the industry. But the overall outlook, I think that social media really has become part of our communal DNA. And the younger the generation with millennials now, an overwhelming majority of the American workforce, that's in their DNA, right? They're digital native. So that aspect is not going to go away. And um, despite these challenges we've had, I think they're good things. I think the Cambridge Analytica and what have you, they actually help grow the industry by putting those safeguards, putting those privacy measures, and making people think twice about what they do online. Mm, yes, I'm always leery about connections on LinkedIn now. Yeah, it's pretty bad, isn't it? Yeah, I've gotten a lot of them just, I connect with them and they all, they just go sales pitch. And I'm like, okay, I'm not really here for that. And it's funny because they try to employ best practices. So looking back at like the 2016 elections, those bots on Twitter, the ads, on I mean, they were all using best practices that marketers are teaching. So they're very smart about doing this, right? And the LinkedIn is the same because normally they have a personalized connection request. I found the spammers. But now when I see a personalized, I used to, wow, that was personalized. Now it's like, okay, you're, you have company name, you have location, and you've just cut and paste or automatically entered that field with my profile information. So now I think we've all gotten smarter. I hear a lot of people like you that say, you know, I don't trust LinkedIn connection requests anymore for that reason. Yeah, I'm pretty picky now. I have like a backlog of like 30 of them. Right yeah, now. exactly. What do you think is a couple or one common mistake companies make when using social media? Using it as a broadcasting mechanism, which we're in our second decade of social media marketing and companies still tend to do that. Rather than having conversations and engaging, they feel they have the need to publish content. Rather than looking at who followed them and considering following them back or starting a conversation, which is like a best practice on Instagram, if someone followed you, send them a video clip, send them an audio message, ask them how they found you, whatever it is, right? I'm really treating every follower as a potential, not necessarily customer, a potential collaborator, a potential partner, whatever it is, just simply publishing content, simply broadcasting. And that's a, a huge mistake that most companies are simply antisocial and their content is all about the company or product and not about the needs of the social media user is the other issue. We see this most on a platform like Instagram where brand images tend to look like ads in general, right? Uh, and that's why influencers have become so influential because they're great content creators. Any brand could have gone out and started a channel on Twitch. They could have started a channel on YouTube. They had gamers that were employees. There could have been a Taco Bell gamer channel on YouTube that might even be most influential, but they didn't do it right. Lack of understanding, lack of the ability to create that content, lack of the strategic understanding of this concept of digital influence. So at the end of the day, I think as we enter our second decade of social media, that brands just really are not well-equipped and they really need to talk about brands needing to humanize themselves. And this is where I get into collaborating with other influencers, I believe, is the way to best humanize your brand inciting word of mouth, not through your publishing, but through collaboration with other social media users is the best way forward. Yeah, that's right. Because most businesses are kind of leery of new ones because they don't really know what to do or if it's good to start something up, it's going to die. Yeah, true. But if you don't start, right? I mean, if you want to, I see a lot of big brands like on TikTok, they'll do like, you know, takeovers. Let's let this influencer take it over and sort of like blow it up. But 
ask your employees if they're to find good dancers among your employees. I mean, looking at my daughter's high school, there are so many people that are really active on TikTok at that demographic, right? Maybe there are employees that already do it. I mean, I don't know, right? But whatever you want to do, just think a little bit creatively. Instead of thinking about engaging with people you don't know that are going to cost a lot of money, look at the resource you, you have around you because brands with huge budgets should be able to do this and they're not doing it or they're doing it in the wrong way. And that's really a shame. They don't really leverage the potential that social can have for them. And what do you think, what stats or analytics are important for marketers and PR pros in 2020? I know it used to be impressions, but that's now, who cares about that anymore? What do you think is going to be important? Well, I think every company has different objectives, right? For some companies that just want to generate a lot of brand awareness, that still is important. So it really comes down to what is your strategy for the year? What are your key objectives? And what are going to be the KPIs that help you best measure those objectives? And, and everyone's going to be different. So I often get asked, Neil, what are your favorite influencer marketing KPIs? And it's like, it's, there's no influencer marketing KPI. It's a marketing KPI, right? And how do working with influencers help affect that KPI, either positively or negatively? So this tends to be a one-on-one -on -one conversation, a one-on-one -on -one approach with every company having a different strategy. Whether you're, if you're already number one in the market, it's going to be very different than a newcomer, for instance. So and this is the conversation that you need to be having inside your company or with your clients as to what are they trying to achieve? What is the most important thing? And guess what? It's usually sales. So that usually ends up being cost per conversion or what have you, right? And after cost per conversion, when we look at the funnel, what's the next step? Well, we need to get people to our website. Okay. Cost per website traffic. We need to get people to subscribe to our newsletter to get them in the marketing automation. Cost per subscriber. And then I would say, well, what are your KPIs outside of social media? Do you already have a way of measuring all that, right? And some companies don't, right? So I think it's really time to get smart and measure all of your activities and use that to benchmark what you do going forward. And what hurdles or challenges do you think PR pros are going to face this year in 2020? Wow. I am not a PR native by any means. I have a lot of friends that are in PR. I think that just as we saw a lot of journalists become content marketers, I think that with influencers becoming the new media in digital media, I think that PR professionals would be smart to lean towards that type of work in their company. Hey, what are we doing with influencers? Maybe this is something that PR can help out with. I do think it's a great area and it's a natural area for PR professionals. If you ask any PR professional, they'll say that they are one of the most undervalued parts of a company. And I believe that to be the case as well. So I don't think that's going to change any, unfortunately, but I do believe by PR expanding into that area where there's a need for one-on-one -on -one relationship building, that's really the, the strength of PR. I do believe that that's really going to help them establish more authority and recognition internally. And that would be my advice for any PR pro that's listening to this. Try to figure out an influencer relationship, a PR approach to influencer marketing, and try to influence your company internally so that you begin to have a say in that and you begin to actually improve how your company's doing because I believe a PR pro can do it much better than a spray and pray marketer can, right? Not that every marketer spray and pray, but you know what I mean. <laughs> I get you. And moving on to mostly talking about colleges and kind of the speed of change, do you think colleges really are equipped to keep up with the rate of change that digital marketing usually goes through in an industry? Because it seems like when I was in college, social media was not talked about at all, but social media was going on all the time. Yeah. They're not really equipping college students. And I actually teach as part of a few executive education programs, one at Rutgers Business School, one in Ireland at the Irish Management Institute. And I think that, you know, the problem is that professors are using textbooks that are antiquated. So that's where it begins with actually bringing in new content. Because generally speaking, a class uses a textbook and the textbook is like on its 30th edition or 20th edition, right? So it really begins with someone that is head of the program saying, you know what, we need to do a reset. We need to reach out to local companies and find what they find important. If we're going to have someone graduate with a communications master or with a marketing degree, what would that look like? And really replicate what that would look like in their program. And I think the universities that do that, that are more proactive, are going to end up really becoming the leading ones. I mean, there's one university, Southern New Hampshire University that has one of the best online social media marketing programs because they were sort of first to it. I think for communications, I hear about Syracuse University has a really, really good program. So 
There are a few universities that are very progressive that are doing this, but for the most part, no, they're still a little bit further behind. In fact, leveraging social media marketing for their university, they're still behind <laughs> from a marketing perspective. So, so yeah, there's a lot of potential there. And I would love to have conversations with any universities that are listening to this. I'd love to have a conversation with how they can really leverage all these trends, both within their education to really educate the next generation of digital leaders, but also for them to better connect with potential students that they probably want to recruit to their university. Yeah, I tend to agree because, like I said before, when I was in college, we weren't talking about social media at all. We we're still talking about the press, press releases, and nothing was talked about social media quite at all. Really. Yeah, you can't ignore the reality. And you can't say, well, any textbook we have will need revision a year from now, which might be the case. But I've been fortunate that some of my books, my last book, Maximize Your Social, has been used as a textbook at some universities. So there are books out there. And you might have to change your selection of books every year. But most marketing and PR professionals that are educators also probably have some experience. So it's less of letting them decide in the course curriculum and more of maybe oversight that says we need to make sure that 10% of this curriculum is about social media or, or things like that. Some oversight, right? And it's almost the same as a decade ago. I always like to compare influencer marketing. It's like, well, where do we start? How do I convince my superiors about the value? And it's like, well, how did you do this 10 years ago with social media? Sort of the same conversation. You never had a social media budget, right? So it's the same thing with universities. It's almost like a lot of companies started with a center of excellence. You know, Dell used to have a VP of social media, believe it or not. They don't do that anymore. But a lot of companies do have these centers of excellence, which teach best practices and what have you. I think it's time for universities to have sort of a digital center of excellence where maybe it's a few appointed professors or they probably work with agencies or maybe they have a marketing team. But they should have that center of excellence both for their marketing of their university as well as for that curriculum. And you know what? When I teach at Rutgers, we've had people from R&D in that program. They're not marketers, but they're leveraging social listening to analyze public sentiment, right? So it really goes beyond the need for social media. If you're teaching HR, I mean, social media becomes a critical component of, of recruiting as well as compliance. So it goes beyond marketing and communications. And hopefully any university listening to this will take action on that. And Content-wise, will you think live streaming become the next hype content or the content that everybody should be on? I think we saw that happen like two or three years ago with Facebook Live. And everyone's like, oh, you know, we had Periscope and Meerkat. We had all that. So I think we're beyond that. It's like just because you're on Facebook Live and I get a notification doesn't mean you can have a video broadcast that's boring, that you have nothing to say. I don't think people are going to watch you just because you're going live. And I see this on Instagram all the time. So-and-so is going live. Well... I only have a minute. I want to look at my feed. I want to look at my notifications. So I don't think that's the future. But what I do see happening is Snapchat, Facebook Watch, they're trying to create this concept of TV over the social network. So instead of tuning in to see a show of Ellen on whatever network she's on right now, of actually having people tune in at a certain day, certain time to watch someone, and it might be an influencer, which I think Snapchat's trying to do more of. So there might be some of that, but that's not the type of live streaming that probably the listeners here are thinking of. That's just TV that's been replicated through a social network. So I don't think it's going to, I think doing a live stream, you need to become, if social media requires you to become the media, live streaming requires you to become a TV station. How many companies can do that? Not many. Now there might be a few, and I do have some clients that have done it because they actually have TV studios. So if you have that sort of video setup. And you have a calendar that says over the course of a year, once a week at this day and time, we can talk about these 52 different subjects and we can carry it on for 10 minutes, 15 minutes. And maybe we can bring in really, really interesting celebrities to interview that would interest people. Then I say, go for it. But if that's the sort of preparation that I would want you to have, if you want to go into live streaming. Yeah, that's true. I mean, live streaming is a lot more difficult than what people actually think it is, but it's still like one of the things that everybody's like, oh, you should do, be doing live video. It's like, mm, that's a lot of setup work just to go live. People just don't know about that. Yeah, and it's not new anymore. So maybe three years ago, going live on this day and time, people would tune in. But now it's become a commodity. You need to have more. Just the fact that you're going live is not enough to get people to tune in is really the, the important message. Speaking of podcasting, do you think it'll be another avenue for businesses to create content for social? I know... Facebook and Twitter aren't really that big in podcasting, but do you think business will lean more into it because 
it's a lot less money than they actually think it is, or it's a lot easier to reach their employees or even their customers. Yeah, podcasting is really, really interesting. And I'm trying to find my notes that I took from attending PodFest last week because there were some pretty significant notes or significant things said. And just give me one second here. Here we go. So this came from Rob Walsh, I believe is his name, who I think he's the CEO of Libsyn or maybe he's like VP of marketing. But Libsyn is the biggest, as we know, the biggest podcast host. So they have incredible amount of of information. So this is the interesting stat that they gave. In 2020, the amount of monthly users of Sirius FM is 34.4 million. The amount of users for Spotify is 59 million. And maybe these are stats from the United States. I'm not sure. The amount of users that Pandora has is 68.8 million. The amount of users that podcasting apps have is 90 million. So it right now, there are more podcast listeners from a monthly user base than people that are listening to Spotify. But when we talk about supply and demand, there are 650 million blogs that exist, and there are less than a million podcasts that exist. So the supply and demand, in fact, there's only 246,000 podcasters that have more than 10 episodes in the last 90 days. So when you look at it that way, the supply and demand, and I have seen I recently moved over from Libsyn to a host called Buzzsprout, and they have a really engaging Facebook community. And I'll see people put things up like, hey, just hit my 500th download in my first week. Or There's some pretty incredible numbers that if you're a small business and you're only getting a few hundred hits to your website over the course of a month, you might be able to easily replicate that in a podcast. So in terms of content consumption, I find podcasting to be actually very, very attractive. And as a vehicle to reach out to influencers, it becomes even more attractive, which is how I would almost recommend you do an interview type show like a lot of podcasters do, like this podcast is as well, around your industry and really use that as a vehicle to reach out to others. I think you'll be really, really successful. And because there's so few podcasts out there compared to blogs, you can really niche down and find something that maybe no one has a podcast on and really own that category, own that niche, which is really, really hard to do with any other medium that's out there. Maybe with YouTube, some niche B2B, you might be able to do that. But so yes, I do think that podcasting is a great vehicle. And and guess what? You can repurpose that content very easily into written content. You can use those audio snips as, as a video, should you want to do that. Or you can do video interviews and cut those up and repurpose them into smaller YouTube videos and social videos. So as a way of repurposing content, it's a great vehicle as well. So I know that I was one as well. I thought podcasting was a really niche thing. And when I went to this first podcasting convention, it was a lot of ex-radio folks, what have you. But I love this quote from the gentleman from Libsyn was that think of podcasting. A lot of people say, oh, podcasting is just like radio. He was saying, really think of podcasting or a podcast more like a magazine than radio. And think of it as a large medium with niche content. When you put those two together, I think for most brands, most companies that are in an industry that already have a lot of content, that magazine approach with a niche, I think is a really powerful way of thinking about podcasting. And hopefully a few that listen to uh, this podcast will want to learn more about that. It really is a compelling medium. And I think that it's going to continue to grow. It may not double, triple, but with every year, I think the stats show we have this slower and slower, this tumbleweed approach. And I think it's only going to continue. And by the way, this morning I wore a t-shirt, obviously here in my suit right now, but I wore a t-shirt of the PodFest 2020 exhibition, their standard t-shirt, and it said, ask me about my podcast, right? So I go to Starbucks in Irvine and the barista says, hey, tell me about your podcast. And and I'm just, there were four 20-something baristas there, right? Working at Starbucks. I'm like, hey, how many of you listen to podcasts? Two of them raised their hand, right? And it's actually a millennial that got me a Gen Xer into listening to podcasting. So There's a lot more podcast listeners out there than you think. And as you know, there's a science and an art to podcasting, but it's not as difficult once you get the system and the tools. It's not as difficult as you might think, right, once you get to do it. So I'd encourage more businesses that are interested in a unique way to be heard. Instead of thinking, how do I outdo the Facebook algorithm? Change the conversation, change the medium, and really consider podcasting. Yeah, I read... I'm on a lot of podcasting groups in Facebook. That's the only way I go on Facebook is those groups. Yeah. And 
Daniel J. Lewis just did one last month of a stat. It says there's 900,000 podcasts. That's on Apple Podcasts, so there might be more. But Oh, and by the way, someone that I met at PodFast is actually in charge of a podcast that Georgetown University has, linking this back to the schools. The Georgetown University School of Entrepreneurship actually has their own podcast. And that school understands the value, but the business school doesn't see the value. So I'm like, you should represent the entire Georgetown. There's so many things you could do with this, with the alumni, with the students. And they're very limited because it's only owned by one school. But yes, it can't even be used by university for those of you. And I forgot the name of the podcast, but if you look for a school, Georgetown University Entrepreneurship Podcast, hopefully you'll find it. It's a really good show, actually. All right. And final fun question. If you could create a social media, what would you create? Wow. I have never been asked that question. So I suppose if I could create a social media, I would want something where if someone has a need, they would be able to find someone else that could serve that need. And I know it sounds very esoterical, but I do believe that a lot of us are on social media to meet a need, an emotional need, a social need, a cultural need, what have you. So, you know, a great example is Nextdoor. There's a post in my neighborhood of someone who says, my company is getting a bunch of hand sanitizer with coronavirus. I know you can't get in supermarkets. Let me know if you would like some hand sanitizer. It costs this much. It was She wasn't trying to make money off it. She was really trying to be a good citizen. And I think there's a lot of those types of situations where just being able to reach out to someone or, or ask a question and find someone relevant in a trusted environment. So maybe Nextdoor is sort of closest to that because it is very locally based. But maybe something in Nextdoor, but that also has this virtual global aspect of connecting people, connecting people for obviously the common good. All right. Any final thoughts for our listeners? Uh, no, these are exciting times for PR for marketers in digital and social media. And really, you hear this a lot, but never stop learning, never stop listening to podcasts. I subscribe to about 10 podcasts that I listen to religiously every week when I'm in my car. So whether it's podcasts, YouTube videos, blogs, there are a number of reputable sources there that are constantly updating and things change. So you really want to keep on the tabs of that. But on the other hand, you also want to understand that some things don't change overnight. You want to stick to the principles of your brand the principles of your strategy and of your voice. But think about those new mediums we talked about. We talked about podcasting. We talked about influencers and find opportunities that I know exist there for your company. All right. Thank you, Neil, for all your enlightening things about social media. Thank you. It's been fun. All right. And thank you for tuning in to PR360. If you could, please subscribe to PR360 and all the popular podcasting sites. That is Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google podcast and join us next week as we talk to a great thought leader in the PR and tech industry. All right, guys, see you next week. Later.